Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Well, good morning. Please take your Bibles. And again, we are in the book of 1 John, way back at the back of the New Testament. We are in chapter 4, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 7 through 12. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Tracy and I were watching uh, television earlier this week, and a commercial came on. I don't remember what it was for or what it was about, other than the fact that it was yet another commercial that had something to do with uh, all that's going on. It seems like all of the commercials these days are addressing our current situation. And so after the commercial was over, Tracy turned to me and she said, can I give you a suggestion for your sermon this week? Now she almost never does that. She might say something after the sermon, rarely, but she never gives me suggestions before the sermon. But this time she did. And she said, would you please not say anything about COVID-19 or the coronavirus, don't use phrases like in in these unprecedented times, or phrases like social distancing or stay apart. Don't talk about washing our hands, we're not six years old. And obviously I did not listen to what she said, because here I am using all of those phrases. Her point was that she was tired of hearing about it. And I said to her that night, I said, well, I was actually going to use all of that, because I think it does fit in 1 John chapter 4. Because even as we are tired of hearing about all of the phrases that have become commonplace in our language these days, and sometimes we want to get away from all of those things, we come to 1 John chapter 4, and we hear John saying the same thing again. I told you week one that John repeats himself. And we're going to see that specifically in the verses we are looking at this morning. And so when I read them in just a few moments, you might think to yourself, I've already heard this. John is telling us to love one another. And he's already told us that multiple times. Back in chapter 2, he said that our love for one another within the body of Christ shows that or demonstrates that we are walking in the light versus walking in darkness. In chapter 3, he talked about the fact that our love is evidence, that is, as we love one another in the body of Christ, it is evidence that we are children of God. In fact, I looked back over my sermon titles from this series, and there are no less than four titles that have the word love in it. We've talked about who do you love. We've talked about improving your love life. We've talked about a lifestyle of love and a message of love. So four times, we've already talked about love. And then when we come to chapter 4, verse 7, John says it yet again. In fact, from chapter 4, verse 7, through chapter 5, verse 3, the word love, agape in the Greek, is found 30 times. So you think we've talked about love a lot already? John is just beginning. In fact, someone has said that we might call Paul the apostle of faith. That's what he talks about a lot. We might call Peter the apostle of hope. 
And James, the apostle of good works, that is, he talks about how our works are to be a demonstration of our faith. And then when we come to John, we might call him the apostle of love. So why does John bring all of this up yet again? Well, for one, repetition is a form of teaching. You teachers know that. We have to hear something over time and repeatedly in order for it to really be digested. And certainly, with our understanding that the Word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit, we would come to the conclusion that whether we want to admit it or not, we need this message yet again. And so John is writing again about loving one another. Paul even admits it somewhere else. He says, for me to write the same things to you again is not a burden for me, rather it is helpful for you. And so we hear yet again that we are to love one another. And yet, there is a slight twist here. Because in these verses we are talking about the basis or the motivation for why we are to love one another. I mean, let's admit it. We sometimes get frustrated with ourselves that we know we are to love one another, and yet we have such a hard time doing it. Or that we are committed to doing it, and yet we often fail, wanting to do what is right, and yet having a struggle in actually doing it. And so if that's the case in our lives, and my guess is it is true of most of us, It might just be because we have forgotten or never made the connection with what I want to talk about this morning. And that is a confident love. Not my confidence in how much I love you, nor yours in how much you love me, but the confidence that God loves us that then gives us the assurance to love one another. So look with me at 1 John chapter 4. And I'll begin reading in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. So we are talking this morning about confident love, a confidence that God loves us. After all, we're His children. That then leads us to confidently love one another. Now the first thing I want you to see here is that love originates in God the Father. That's the whole point of my connection in saying confident love stems from the fact that we become confident that God loves us as the basis then for loving one another. And so God's love for us leads us to love one another. And we see here that love originates in God the Father. You see, God loves us not because of who we are, 
not because of what we might accomplish or how successful we are in loving one another. God loves us because of who God is. Now, you've probably had this experience, at least when you used to get out of the house and go to work, that when you came home from work, especially after a bad day, you know those days at work when nothing goes right, the projects you wanted to complete did not get finished, uh, the reports that you wanted turned in did not come onto your desk, you wound up arguing or yelling with your employees or co-workers or your boss, and so you come home discouraged and defeated after a hard day of work, only to come into the house and your little child comes running up to you with all kinds of excitement, glad that you are home, and they say to you, I love you, Daddy. I love you, Mama. And then it is you realize that they don't care what you may or may not have done at work. Their love for you is not contingent upon what you've accomplished that day. They love you simply for who you are. And that is what we see in the way that God loves us. He loves us not for what we ought to be, or not for what we accomplish. He loves us because He is a God of love, and love originates from Him. Now, I want you to see three things about this first point. And the first is simply this. We know the command. Beloved, John says, love one another. And again, we've heard that before, and we will hear it again. So I do not want to take your time nor mine this morning to go over that command again, because I am going to assume, especially if you've been with us, that you already are familiar with that command. And in fact, most people understand, whether they be Christians or non-Christians, that we are called to love one another. And so I don't have to spend our time on that. So you know the command. But secondly, I think if we're honest, we, we've probably made the commitment. That is, there has been a time in our past where we have heard a sermon, perhaps one in this series, and we have been convicted by the Holy Spirit of God that yes, indeed, we are to love one another, and yet we fall short in that. And in fact, a, a name has come to mind, somebody that we are struggling with loving, even though they are within the body of Christ. And so we've made a commitment. We've said, yes, God, I understand what your word says. And I know that I've fallen short. And I need to start loving so-and-so. And we leave the church service having been convicted and having committed to loving that person in a better way that next week and beyond. And so we pray for that person, and you know how hard that is, to pray for someone that you really don't like. But you begin praying for them. And you begin trying to reach out to them. And then you discover that maybe they're not as, as favorable to you reaching out to them as you had hoped that they might be. And so when they don't reciprocate that love, and when over the course of a week or two you don't see a lot of changes, you give up. You quit. And the sermon you heard fades into the distant. The conviction is long gone. And you return to your critical comments about them, and your distance from them. I mean, why can't we love one another long term? Why do we struggle with this so much, even though we know it is a biblical command and we have tried our best to make the commitment? And the answer might just be, at least in part, 
that we lack the confidence that God loves us. That's the connection that we see in this text. We lack the confidence that God loves us, which then frees us, if we had it, to love one another. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are a lot of people that have, well, frankly, frankly, a lot of confidence. There are a lot of people who walk around with an air of authority and confidence. And to look at them, you might think to yourself, they have all the confidence in the world. And in fact, I wish I had more of that confidence. We see it in athletes, don't we? Again, at least when they used to get to play their sport, they would get on TV and brazenly claim that they were the greatest in their sport or the greatest at their position, having all the confidence in the world. Well, that's not exactly what I'm talking about this morning. But even in those cases, deep down, there is often this nagging sense that though we want to come across to others as if we have confidence, there is that nagging sense in many of us that we simply don't measure up. And we, like so many others, are searching for love, for someone to love us for who we are, not for what we can do for them or what we can accomplish. And until we have that, our love for others often comes across as forced or manipulated and becomes frustrating, which is why it does not last. You say, well, you know, frankly, this is what I've been waiting to hear. I mean, until I get the confidence that someone else loves me, I won't love others. And so we rationalize and say, when my spouse starts loving me, then I will love him or her. Or we say, as soon as that person says I'm sorry and begins to change the way they react to me, then I will start loving them. No, no, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. We have a responsibility to love others regardless of what they may or may not do in return for us. So I'm not trying to give you a rationalization for not loving and waiting on them. I'm talking about learning to be confident in the fact that God loves us. And because I become confident in God's love for me, I then am freed up to love others regardless of how they respond to me. I mean, notice verse 7. Look at that again. Love is from God. Love, the kind of love we're talking about, flows from God because it originates in God. Now, that does not mean that anyone who does anything loving is expressing the love of God. We're going to talk later about our expression of God's love, but I'm not trying to say that any expression of love is a, an expression that flows from God. Neither am I saying that love can only be done by Christians. Yes, love is a characteristic of the child of God, but unbelievers can love. I mean, your neighbor who does not know Christ can love their spouse or their children as much or even better than, than you do. But at the same time, their love does not flow from their relationship with God because they do not have such a relationship. So John is talking about a particular kind of love, a love that is found only in those redeemed by Jesus Christ. So this is not a natural kind of love. That's why it's so difficult. This is not a natural kind of love. This is a supernatural kind of love. And you know, the reason we struggle with all of this, I think, is in part because we have faulty definitions of love. 
As I talked about a few moments ago, oftentimes our thought about love is very selfish. That is, we want people to love us. We think more about that than our love for others. Frankly, if I might say it, oftentimes our, our love is, is a sexual kind of love. I mean, we so focus on that in our culture that we, we have a hard time understanding the kind of love we see here. Or love is superficial or even shallow. We've talked about that in the past as well. How quickly a, a teenager will express their love for their newfound boyfriend or girlfriend. And how superficial that is because they don't even really know them. None of that is what we're talking about here. We're talking about a supernatural kind of love that God has, and because we are His children, we are to express that kind of love as well. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So John goes a step further. Not only does love flow from God, but we see here that it is the very nature of God. You see, I can say that I love my children. But I cannot say I am love. I mean, I am not the epitome of love. And if you were here with us, you could ask Tracy from, about that, and she would readily agree with that statement. Neither are you, however. You are not the greatest example of love. You are not the epitome of love. So you cannot say, I am love. But that's exactly what John says about God. God is love, verse 8. And he'll say it again in verse 16. This is the high water mark of John's letter. This is the summit of his revelation. He says in these two verses, it is really this simple. God is love. And that being true, then it is to be the nature and character of God to love us. He doesn't have to force himself or coerce himself into loving you. He does not become frustrated with His love for you. He does not have to bend His will in order to love you. He is a God of love. And so He loves you. And we need to get that truth settled in our minds this morning. I mean, we know this is a command. Beloved, love one another. And we've made the commitment. We've tried this in the past. But it just seems to fade away so quickly. The reason being, perhaps, is because we lack the confidence that God really does love us. In spite of what we've done, in spite of how often we've failed Him, in spite of how fickle our commitment really is, if you're a child of God, because God is love, God loves you. And if you're not a child of God, He has provided a way by which you may become one which is where we head next. So not only does love originate in God the Father, but love is manifested in God the Son. You say, how can I know for sure that what you're saying is true? I mean, I hear your words, and if I have my Bible open, I can see the words in black and white, but I need more than words. We talk about that in relationships, right? We tell husbands in premarital counseling, you're going to have to express your love to your wife. You can't just say it and then not show it. You're going to have to express it. And we joke about the guy who says, you know, well, I told you I loved you at our wedding, and if anything changes, I'll let you know. And we realize that those are deficiencies in the way we demonstrate love. 
And so it is when we come to this situation with God. God hasn't just said that He loves us, although that would have been good enough. God has demonstrated, God has manifested His love toward us in God the Son. Look again at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. God did something to show, to demonstrate His love for us. And what is that? That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In wording reminiscent of John 3.16, John here says that God showed His love toward us by sending His Son, His only Son, His unique Son, so that we might live through Him. Now notice three things about this manifestation of God's love through God's Son. First of all, God initiated our salvation. He sent His Son, John says. The plan of salvation did not originate in your mind. Neither did it start in mine. It originated and was initiated by God Himself. This is not my plan. It is not your plan. This was God's plan of salvation that He initiated long ago. He initiated this plan because He is a God of love. You notice in verse 10 that John says, the way we define love is not in how I love God, but in how God loves us. And this love is manifested in the fact that while we were yet sinners, that's the way Paul words it in Romans, in that while we were yet sinners, God loved us enough to initiate this plan of redemption. Now to be honest, most of us think we're good folks. And as good folks, we deserve salvation. I mean, we don't have a hard time understanding why God saved us. Because we're good, moral people. And there is a sense in which many of us believe that we deserve salvation. That it makes sense that God would save us. It is natural and fair that we are one of His children. But that is not the story of the Bible. The Bible says that we are by nature children of wrath and enemies of God. And the natural and fair and right thing for God to do is to not save any of us but to condemn all of us to eternal punishment. That is what we deserve, whether we're willing to admit it or not. But God's love led Him to initiate a plan of salvation whereby we can be saved. And this plan began not on the basis of our worthiness, but on the basis of His love. You see, God didn't wait for you to become worthy so that He could save you. God didn't wait for you to clean up your act and respond to Him first. Rather, He initiated this plan of salvation by sending His Son to die for the very people that put Him to death. And that is the essence of love. And that should give us confidence. When we understand that God did all of that for us out of His love, when we did not deserve it, nor were we, nor ever could be worthy of it, that gives us confidence that He does love us. I mean, isn't that the first thing that goes in a time of crisis? When something goes wrong in our life, isn't that one of the first things that comes into our minds? 
if, if God loves me, why? why? Why is He allowing this? If God is a God of love, then, then why is He letting this happen? We say those, or at least think those kind of things, all the time. And yet, Scripture is very clear that God does love us. He has manifested that love in the sending of His Son. And so we read elsewhere, He who spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not also with Him freely or graciously give us all things? If God is willing to initiate our salvation by freely sending His Son, why then do we ever have a doubt? Why do we ever come to the place where we start thinking that God's going to stop loving us? When we can merely look back and see the cross of Jesus Christ manifests God's love for us. He initiated our salvation. And then secondly, He sacrificed for our sin. Now while this passage does not specifically talk about Christ's death, it does. And in fact, it's the, the focal point of it in some sense. Last week we talked about the incarnation of Jesus. You remember that? We talked about the fact that the false teachers were in, in part false, in large part false, because they were denying the humanity of Christ. That is, they were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. There has always been that struggle between the full humanity and full deity of Christ. And there have always been those who err on one side or the other, overstressing His deity or overstressing His humanity or vice versa. But here we're talking about the atonement. And we mentioned that last week as well, that in denying the incarnation, the coming of God into flesh, they were in fact denying as well what Jesus did on Calvary by atoning in the flesh for our sins. And here we see that He sacrificed and died in our place and for our sins. He left heaven and the fellowship with God the Father that He had enjoyed for, from all of eternity to live as a man and die as our sacrifice. Something that we cannot possibly fathom the depths of that sacrifice. Paul, in writing to the church in Philippi, said, who, speaking of Jesus, of course, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Now you will acknowledge and remember the other aspects of his sufferings. Again, we've talked about that before, oftentimes leading up to Easter. We've talked about the physical nature of the suffering. We've talked about the emotional nature of the suffering. We've talked about the separation from God that, that led him to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken, forsaken me? All of this to sacrifice for us. Why did the Son endure all of this? Because God was manifesting His love for you in the death of His Son. I don't know if they use this phrase anymore, but when I was in school, and particularly um, some of the Christian schools would use this phrase. I did not go to a Christian school, but you remember the, the phrase PDA? public display of affection. 
And sometimes we used it in youth groups, you know, when we would go on a trip somewhere, we would remind the youth, there will be no PDA on this trip, which meant no holding hands, no kissing, none of that kind of stuff. Well, God demonstrated publicly, He publicly demonstrated His affection, His love for you by sending His Son to die on the cross to sacrifice for our sins. And John says He did it, verse 9, so that we might live through Him. He did it for our well-being, knowing that life apart from Christ was hopeless and helpless. We had no chance of survival. We had no chance of salvation. The very fact that Jesus came and sacrificed is evidence of the truth that we desperately needed a Savior. And without such a sacrifice, we are destined to die in our sins, which is exactly what many are still intent on doing. Because they have not embraced the sacrifice made on their behalf and for their sin, they are headed for a life of death and destruction. He came to die so that you and I might live. Now, enduring is what you and I are doing right now in many respects. We are enduring this pandemic. There I go violating Tracy's suggestion again. We are enduring this stay-at-home order, waiting for it to be over so that we can go about our lives. And so for a time being, we are, we are living in this enduring state, just trying to get through this. But you know, that's the way many people live all of their lives, not just these few weeks or months. They're trying to endure life. That's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus did not come so that you would endure life. He Himself said that He came that we might have not only eternal, but abundant life. He sacrificed for you and for your sins so that you could have an abundant life. Now, how can I get that kind of love? Well, you can have it by understanding and embracing the third element. God the Father manifested His love for you through His Son by initiating salvation, by the fact that God sacrificed through His Son for our sin, and then John tells us that God provided for our forgiveness. Look at verse 10. In verse 10 there is that theological word, a rich theological word. And this is one reason why I don't necessarily like versions that sort of take these terms out. Propitiation. I know that's a hard term to understand. I get confused about it sometimes myself. It's a word that we don't find a lot in the Bible. It's only found twice here in John's letter. Back in chapter 2, we talked about it briefly. And it's only found two other places in the New Testament. Romans chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 2. Propitiation literally means the means by which our sins are forgiven. That is, it's the removal of guilt due to a sacrifice. We just talked about the fact that God in Christ sacrificed for our sins so that He could be our propitiation. He could be the means by which our sins are forgiven. Now, if you remember, when we did our long study in the Gospel of Mark, there were times when Jesus simply spoke the Word. He said, 
your sins are forgiven. But here and through the cross, it's not merely speaking the words. It is the means by which our sins are forgiven. That's what propitiation means. That Jesus is the means by which we are forgiven through His death. And furthermore, the Bible says He is the only means. That is, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. So if it is true, the sending of God's Son implies very strongly our need for a Savior, then it is equally true that there is no other way. I mean, if you could merely speak the Word, if you could merely say, my sins are forgiven, then there's no reason for Jesus to sacrifice to provide a means of forgiveness. If you could earn your own forgiveness, that is, if you could do something, and this is the popular teaching of the most, most uh, world religions, that you yourself have to do something in order to earn your forgiveness, if that were possible, then Jesus' sacrifice to provide for your forgiveness is meaningless. If there is another way by which we can come to God forgiven other than the sacrifice and provision of Christ then the cross is a mistake. Like it or not, Scripture's claim is an exclusive claim. That there is salvation through the provision of Christ and His forgiveness, and that is the only way. And yet He is willing to do all of that because of His love for you. One of my favorite authors is a British pastor from years gone by. He is... He is deceased now, John Stott. John Stott says this, It is God Himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. That is, God's wrath against sin is so serious that it needs to be satisfied. So, God Himself in His holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God Himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiation. And God Himself, who in the person of the Son, died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus, God took His own loving initiative to appease His own righteous anger by bearing in His own self, in His own Son, when He took our place and died for us. Did you hear over and over again how it was God? It was God who in His wrath needed to be propitiated. But it was God in His love who undertook to be that propitiation in God Himself through the person of His Son. So God's holiness requires satisfaction. And God's love provided it. So love originates in God the Father and then is manifested in God the Son. And then thirdly, love is completed in God's people. Now, I know that's a strange way to say it, and so I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there is something lacking in the love of God that you and I must somehow fulfill. That's not what I mean. But when I say that, we are, that the love of God is completed or perfected in His people, I'm looking there at verses 11 and 12. Now remember, the main command, hopefully you haven't forgotten this, is love one another. 
But this can only be rightly obeyed as we understand the source and significance of God's love, not ours. And so the command is repeated in verse 11 with God's love as the basis. And once we understand how much God loves us, how then can we respond to other people any differently? A child has the nature of his parents. God is our Father. And we've already seen that God is love. That is His nature. And if we are new creatures who have been given the nature of God, then we have that nature within us. Not completely, of course. We study that in one of our life groups, that love is one of those communicable attributes of God. One of those attributes that we share, though certainly not in any way comparable to the way God loves us. So verse 12 may seem a bit out of place at first reading, but what it is saying is this, God's love is completed in and through His people. So John says, first of all, you can't see God. I mean, how do we know that God loves us? We've already said that He manifested His love in, in His Son or through His Son on the cross, but we can't see God. He is present in heaven, He is present everywhere, but we cannot physically see Him. And so, of course, as a side note, this certainly rules out all of those who claim to have gone somewhere and had a revelation of God, that God appeared to them in their, in their morning breakfast or carried them to heaven in some way and they saw God and now have come back. This, this verse, among others, denies all of that. So we cannot see God physically, at least not now. I know you might say, well, but weren't there people in the Bible that did? For example, Moses. Moses wanted to see the glory of God, and he asked God for this, and God said, you can't handle it, but I'll put you in the rock over there, and I'll pass by, and you can see a, a part as I go by. So even that small glimpse was way too much for Moses to handle. Or one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. Isaiah claims to have seen the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up. But these were theophanies. That is, these were visions of God. Revelations of God. We cannot see God in His person here. John makes that clear. But then secondly, God abides in us. We've talked about this enough as well. I won't belabor it. It's John's, one of John's favorite words, both here and in the Gospel. God has chosen to make His home, His abode, in His children. He no longer, as He did in the Old Testament, dwelt in an earthly temple. He now dwells in you as, as His child. And we've heard that so often, it doesn't boggle our minds like it should. That God has chosen to dwell in me and in you that should stagger our thinking. We should have to pause the video right now and say, how can this be? How and why would God choose to dwell in someone like me? But that is exactly what John says. We can't see God, but God abides in us. And then while we can't see God physically, He does live within His children. And as a result, His love is shown through us. That's essentially what John means here by saying that love is complete or perfected in us. The old saying is indeed biblical. 
that people should see Jesus in you. While they cannot see God with their eyes, they can see His love not only manifested in His Son at Calvary, but demonstrated through you as His child. We spend time trying to learn how to witness so that we can tell others about Jesus, and and rightfully so. We spend time learning biblical doctrine so that we can accurately and effectively communicate with people, and again, rightfully so. But it is actually possible to be orthodox in belief and moral in our behavior and still turn people away from the gospel. Because our right belief and right behavior must be combined with genuine love for one another. And this love then is not born out of external compulsion. It is not manipulated by the preacher It is an internal constraint, or as Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. And can I pause and give another reminder and just say, this applies to our online communication as well. I mean, in this time that we're spending so much time online, it's a good reminder that in our posts, we need to be showing the love of God. And when we get this order right and understand it correctly, That the command to love one another flows from God's love for us. That is, we have confidence that God loves me, and therefore, as a child of His, because I share His nature, I am going to love others. Now we don't obey out of guilt. We don't obey because it's the right thing to do. We don't obey out of fear of the consequences if we don't do it. We simply obey because Christ's love compels us. You know, the Bible says that because God is a God of mercy, we are to show mercy. The Bible says that because God is holy, we are to be holy. And here the simple truth that John is trying to get across is this, that God is love. Therefore, we are to love one another. And when we do that, the God who cannot physically be seen, though He was manifested in His Son at Calvary, can now be seen in you and I as we show that we are Christians and they will know that we are Christians by our love. His love revealed through us. That is what John is talking about here. On June 25th, 1967, I remember that day well. I was one at the time. The Beatles, you remember them? The Beatles in front of a, of a television audience of some 400 million people from 67 countries. They were charged, now keep in mind, that's before the internet, 400 million people from 67 countries. And they were charged with with singing a simple song that would resonate with people. And that song was this, All You Need Is Love. Now the reason I didn't bring that song up until now is because it's a catchy song. And it's going to get stuck in your head. It's one of those songs that just gets stuck in there, you can't get it out. All you need is love. Well, there's really a more fundamental truth than that. 
You see, all you need is God. Because God is love. And when we have God and know God, then John says we will love one another. Once you have the confidence that God loves you, it frees you up to love one another. Let me pray. Father, we do thank You for, once again, the clarity with which John speaks. It's so very simple. And yet we find it often hard to apply. And we've been reminded this morning that it's really not hard to apply because it ought to be our nature. That we bask in Your love for us. And the more we do that, the more we by nature love one another. Because God is love and God abides in us, we then by nature, by the compelling of Christ, we love one another. May that be true of us because we belong to You. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, I will say in closing that um, we know you can't make a physical decision this morning. You can't walk an aisle or join the church or profess your need to be saved or baptized in front of a, an audience here. But you can do those things where you are. And if you do not know the, the pardon of your sin, the forgiveness that's found in Christ, you don't have to wait till we can meet again in person. You can settle that right where you are between you and God. And if you do that, we'd love to hear about it. So reach out to us and let us know. Thank you.